Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. How much are you worth? How much is your life worth? If you had to put a number behind that question, what would it be? There's a couple different ways of answering that question, isn't that right? I mean, if we asked your employer, how much are you worth? They would have an answer. It would be what they pay you every year. If we asked your life insurance, how much your life is worth? They'd have another answer. It would be what would be paid to your family in the event of your death. How much are you worth? There's another way of looking at it. You could add up all of your assets, your car, your home, your savings, your investments, and you could take that number, subtract from that number the debt that you'd owe, and what you would have is your net worth. For some, that's the answer for how much they're worth. Here's another way you could look to the value of statistical life, or VSL. The VSL is a math equation that compares two things, your earning potential throughout your life and the risk of your death. And when you put those two things together, that gives you your VSL. And the average value of statistical life in America, 10 million. That's what your life is worth. It's kind of a cold calculation when you really think about it. Perhaps there's better ways to answer the question of what you're worth. Ways that well, don't include money at all. We could ask that question of what you're worth by, well, asking your friends and family. What are you worth to them? How much are you worth to your neighbor, to your community, to your city? Another way of putting that is, what would the gap look like if you were gone? How much are you worth? It's a really deep question. It's a really important question to answer. And it's a tough question to answer. And yet, our world seems to be really excited to answer it. There is no shortage of answers or places you can go to look for an answer of what you're worth. There's a whole genre of books dedicated to it. It's called self-help literature. It tells you you are important, you are valuable, you are special. There are songs, podcasts, and radio songs that all point to this. Taylor Swift tells you, baby, you're the only one, and baby, that's what makes you fun. It's you. It's you being unique and special and important. That's what gives you value. That's what gives you worth. Well, until it doesn't, until life happens, until you go to school and you're bullied. You're bullied on the playground or in the classroom and, well, there's not one person who sticks up for you. And even though you're told you're valuable, you're special, you're worth a lot, well, you feel worthless. You're told you're valued, you're special, you're cared for by your friends. But then you graduate college and, well, those friends don't return your texts anymore. You take a new job, you move to a new city, and the people that you used to call friends, well, 
it's difficult to connect with them anymore. It becomes apparent that these were just friends of convenience, and now that it's not convenient for them, you don't really feel worth a whole lot. You don't feel valued. You go to work, and you commute there and back, and you watch face after face after face pass by you, and they're all doing the very same thing that you are, but none of them know you. None of them care about you. None of them love you. You come home, you sit down on your couch and you scroll through social media, Facebook or Instagram and you look at all these more faces, faces that are smiling, faces that are beautiful, faces that are successful because that's the way social makes everybody look, right? And you start to wonder, am I worth as much as they are? It's enough to the point where you go to bed at night and you wash your face before you get in bed and you look in the mirror and you wonder, am I really special? Am I really valued? Am I really important? Am I really worth as much as what I'm told I should be worth? The, the messages, they don't match. There's mixed messaging going on. On one hand, we're being told we are valuable. We have worth. We're special. But oftentimes, well, is that how you feel? Oftentimes it's not. And the reason for that, the reason for that tension, the reason for that well, cognitive dissonance between what we hear and what we feel is because you're enslaved. It's because you're slaves. And that's rather a bold claim and a rather, well, weighty thing to just toss out. So let me explain that to you. Slavery is awful. Slavery is a terrible thing. And yet slavery has been going on as long as this world has been around. There has been uh, slavery for indebtedness. People would sell themselves into slavery in order to try to, well, win their freedom. There's been slavery throughout the history of time because of wars and captives of war. There's been slavery because people have been kidnapped and sold for a profit. Thankfully, in 1845, slavery was, is no longer legal in this country. But let's face it, slavery still happens. Slavery happens in this country and it happens all over the world where people fit the definition of what it means to be enslaved. They don't have control over their life. They don't have control over their actions. There is someone who owns them, someone who is mastering them. And it's terrible. Perhaps one of the most disgusting aspects of slavery was what it does to someone's dignity. It robs people of their worth. That's our first key point that we're looking at today is that slavery robs people of their worth because if you're special, if you're worth a lot, if you're unique, if you're someone that is truly valued, how is it that someone else can control you? How is it that someone else can master you? No, slavery is a bad thing for a lot of reasons, but one of the worst is this, is that it robs people of their worth. And this is where the rubber hits the road because the biblical view of our nature is that we are enslaved. All people from the time that they are born are enslaved and they're enslaved to two different masters. They're enslaved to sin and they're enslaved to death. And as we explore these two slave masters and the reason why we are held captive by them, well, it begins to make sense why there's this tension in our life. Why there's this tension to hear that we're valued, hear that we're worth a whole lot. And yet often we do not feel that way. 
we're going to begin by looking at the slavery that we have, that we experience to sin. Romans says this. Paul writes in Romans 7, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul is a Christian. Paul understands what it means to follow God. Paul wants to be someone who is a fully devoted follower of God who does the things that God wants, and yet listen to him. He expresses he can't. He expresses he can't because he's enslaved to sin. He keeps doing things that he doesn't want to do. He's mastered by a slave driver called sin. Can you relate? You want to follow God. You want to live in the life of his love. You want to reflect his love in in all your interactions. And yet there's a thing, there's a temptation in your life that you you keep doing despite the fact that you don't want to do it. You call it drama. (laughs) You don't want to deal with it anymore in your life. And yet you do. Because let's be honest, you, well, even though you don't want to, it's easy to poke buttons. It's easy to push people and create that. You know, maybe it's not drama. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's just being lazy. You don't want to be lazy. You don't want to be unmotivated, but you spend another evening wasted, gone, just scrolling on your phone. Maybe you're the bully. You want to be the person who is of higher character and has courage. But let's face it, it's easier to just fall back. It's easier to just be a part of the crowd. You want to do differently, but you keep doing the things that you don't want to do. Listen, and you hear Paul's frustration. He doesn't want to do these things, and yet he does them. He wants to do what God wants, but he can't do that. It is as though he is not in control. He has a master, and he understands who that master is. He calls it. He says, I am enslaved to sin. This is what sin does. Slavery to sin controls our life. It looks to have power. It looks to have mastery over everything that we do, all of our actions, all of our thoughts, the way we live. That's why sin is, well, such a powerful slave driver. That's Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is very clear about this. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul's very blunt about this. Either you are enslaved to sin and you're doing things that are evil or you're owned by God. (laughs) You're a slave to God. You do things that are good. You do things that are righteous. There's, There's no in between. Either you are a slave to sin and you do evil things or you are a slave to obedience. You are a slave to righteousness and you do good things. There's no no gray area. There's no black or white. There's no in between. It's it's one or the other. It's a hard line to take, but think about the first commandment. What is it? 
The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What God is saying is that any love that you give to anything else besides me enslaves you to that thing. That thing controls you. Y'all know the first commandment. Y'all have heard that before, but how do you know? How do you know if you are controlled by God or something else? Well, I've heard it said that you can just pay attention to your emotions. Because when you react to things with fear, anger, and sorrow, well, that's what controls you. Think about it. If someone or something were to threaten your body, maybe your, your body image, your appearance, if someone or something were to threaten your popularity or your career or your financial status, how would you react? Would you react in anger, fear, and sorrow? Is it politics? Is it sports that ruffle your feathers and cause you to act out in anger, fear, and sorrow? Is it religion? Is it coronavirus? Is it the unknown about what the future holds that causes you to act with anger, fear, and sorrow? Listen, I'm not saying that it is sin all the time when you experience that. Human emotion allows you to always experience those things, anger, fear, and sorrow. But when anger, fear, and sorrow overwhelm, do those things control you? Can you really say when you get angry about this or super sad about this that get, that God is in control of your life. Sin is a powerful master and it controls everything that we do. And the worst part about sin as a slave master, well, it has a partner and its partner is death. Romans 6 says this, you are slaves to sin, which leads to death. The wages of sin is death. That's the New Testament. The Old Testament in Ezekiel says, the one who sins is the one who will die. While slavery to sin looks to control our lives, slavery to death takes our life. And it's pretty empty existence. Throughout our life, you toil, you struggle with sin, and ultimately, it leads to death. And you can pretend. You can pretend that these things do not exist. You can pretend that you are in control and that sin has no mastery over you. You can pretend that you aren't affected by sin any longer, but you'd be living a lie. And even if you could live that lie throughout your whole life, you'd still have to deal with the fact that each and every day you inch closer to the fact that sin not only holds you, but also death has command over you. And every single day you're getting closer and closer to your death. It's almost hopeless, isn't it? That's what Peter is getting at in our lesson for today. When he refers to the empty way of life that we live, the empty way of life that is handed down to you from your ancestors. You can think that you're the best. You can think that you're the brightest. You can think that you're the most intelligent, the most inspired, and the most inspiring. You can think you're the kindest. You can think you are the most generous. You can think whatever superlative you want about yourself, but you're not in control. You don't have mastery over who you are. And even if the superlative was true, you'd be in a class of slaves, 
a class of slaves who at some point is A, either going to do something that is objectively wrong and be held captive by sin, or B, eventually die. That's what the Bible says about you. That's what the Bible says about me and our human nature. That is the Bible's worldview, if you will, on our existence in life. We're slaves. We are enslaved, and you can't do a thing about it. You cannot buy your freedom. It's a pretty hopeless picture, isn't it? It would be if that were the whole story. (laughs) But that's only half the story. Because while you cannot buy your freedom, there is someone who can. The word is redemption. The word is redemption and the hope is redemption. Redemption literally means to purchase or to pay for someone or something at cost and buy something back. And there has been hope. There has been hope for redemption throughout the narrative of scripture, throughout the story of the Bible. From the very beginning, this came into being. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and were controlled by sin and death was promised to come and be the second slave master, this is what God promised both Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. This tension that we've been talking about. And yet he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will come, he will come and he will pay a price. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. From the beginning, there was this hope of redemption. The oldest book perhaps that we have in the Old Testament is the book of Job. Job reflects on the slave master of death. And yet he says this, I know, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. The oldest book of the Bible has this hope, this hope of redemption. Psalm 30, which we read earlier, talks about this hope. Israel, Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And then it happened. There was a transaction. (laughs) There was a transaction on the auction block called Calvary, and it was when Jesus gave his life for you. You know what it cost you know that it was not with perishable things such as gold or silver that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Look, look, slave looks to have mastery over you and control your entire life. Death looks to control you by taking your life. And yet with Christ, there is redemption and there is freedom. Just let this verse sing by itself. You know that it was not with perishable things, such as gold or silver, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. You weren't bought with money, but you were bought with something. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sin and death look to control you and look to take life for you. But Christ's redemption, Christ's redemption gives freedom to our lives. It frees us. It frees us from the masters of sin. It frees us from the master of death. There's this movie called Taken uh, in which Liam Neeson is the star. 
He plays a former CIA operative, and he has a very unique skill set. It comes into, comes into play when his, his daughter, his teenage daughter, is taken from him. She's kidnapped. She's kidnapped, and she is forced into a human trafficking ring, and she's going to be sold. She is going to be sold as someone's sex slave. She goes up on auction and the dad, the father, gets his way into this circle. The scene is powerful. He gets his way into the auction where he sees his daughter being auctioned off, sees his daughter being surrounded by men who want to harm her, men who want to hurt her. And he listens as the price goes up and up and up and people are trying to buy his daughter. So what he does is he, he goes and he puts a gun in the back of one of the auctioners, one of the people, one of the men who are trying to buy his daughter, and he keeps pushing the gun into his shoulder, keep pushing it in, and the price drives up and up and up. And finally, the person, the person that he stuck the gun to, they buy his daughter. They buy his daughter for a half a million dollars, and he frees her. It's a powerful scene. It's a tough scene to watch. Tough scene to watch, especially as a parent, because you can envision, you can watch and think about your son, your daughter being up there. What would you pay to get them back? What would you pay to buy them back and have them back in your arms, in your home again? Would you pay a half million dollars? Would you pay $2 million? Would you pay $10 million? Well, it's really a ridiculous question to ask because there's no amount of money in all the world that you would pay and you would go to get in order to have them back with you. And yet, what did our God do? His son was put on the auction block of life. His son was surrounded by men who wanted to do him harm. And yet, what did he do? Nothing. Because he was, he was God. He was the son of God and the son of man, and he willingly put himself on auction. He willingly allowed himself to be harmed, to be bought by harmful people. Why? He did it so that you could be bought back. He willingly let the precious blood of his son be spilt, to be spent. Why? So that you could have freedom, so that you would know what freedom looks like as a Christian. What is Christian freedom? Christian freedom means that sin no longer has power over you. It means that death no longer has its hand and its grip on you. Christian freedom means that you are told that you are back in the home, back in the arms of your heavenly father. You are brought back through your baptism. You are brought back through the sacraments. You hear this proclaimed to you. You hear this proclaimed to you from the word of God. You hear it proclaimed to you every time we begin our service that your sins are absolved, your sins are washed away. There was redemption. There was a price played. And this isn't just freedom in the willy-nilly sense. This is freedom that is grounded. This is freedom that is grounded in the gospel. There was a cost here. There was a cost. And it was Jesus Christ who spilt his blood for you. It was God who spent his son for you so that you would have freedom so that you would know a life free of the masters of sin and death. Christ's redemption, it, it not only gives you freedom, but it infuses your life with worth. It infuses every moment of your life with purpose and value and worth. There's a passage 
in Romans 6 follows up the passages we read earlier. It says, sin is no longer your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. You are no longer controlled by a slave driver called sin, but you are mastered by something. It's just a God, a God who loves you, a God full of grace, a God full of redemption, a God full of forgiveness. So now what do you do? So now what do you do in your life? Well, the reality is it doesn't matter because whether you are doing some deep, meaningful work, solving some some really difficult problems, or you're simply changing your child's diaper, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that moment in your life has been redeemed. That moment in your life is precious. It has been bought by your heavenly father. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're in line getting a diploma that is a high achievement or you're standing in line at the DMV. That moment in your life has been bought. It has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're surrounded by your friends and your family and you feel as though you couldn't be more blessed or you're by yourself in traffic or you're by yourself at at home, your life, every one of your moments has been bought by Jesus Christ. The question, what do you do now? It, it's really irrelevant. <laughs> there are no checklists. There are no grade reports that come home. God is not assessing your life. He is not valuing you up against your potential earnings or your potential risk of being lost. He simply wraps his arms around you, brings you into his family and infuses every single moment of your life with value, with hope, with promise, with the hope of redemption, the hope that is sure. There's a book, there's a book called What's Your Life Worth? And it's written by a gentleman named Kenneth Feinberg. I don't know if you've heard of him or his book, but even if you haven't heard of him, it's, it's a good chance that you've heard of his work. Kenneth Feinberg is a lawyer, an attorney in New York, and he's known as the master of disaster. And the reason is because he has overseen some of the greatest and most expensive payouts from disasters uh, that our country has ever seen. He's overseen the payout from the 9-11 tragedy, the Boston Marathon bombing, the Deepwater Horizon Gulf spill in our home state. He's overseen the payout of the Virginia Tech shooting, the Penn State abuse scandal, and the Aurora Theater shooting. He is the person who has seen to it that everyone who is a victim of these tragedies gets paid. For the 9-11 tragedy, he saw to it that the victims of that were awarded $7.1 billion. Each person who was a victim, the families of those who suffered during that, were awarded $2 million on average each. It's a math equation. The math equation is the potential earnings of that person's life up against the potential suffering. And well, that's the payout that the people get. He's got a difficult job. In an interview recently, he's talked about that. He's talked about how his his job is hard, but the hard part isn't the math. The hard part isn't finding out what people deserve and, well, what people are getting. He said the hard part is enduring people's stories, enduring people's story of tragedy and suffering. The hard part is listening to the story of the fireman's wife 
who told the story of her husband, who rescued people from the 9-11 Twin Towers, who, who rushed in again and again to the building and the burning lobby and brought people out. First one, then a group, then he rushed back in for more. And on his way out, he was killed. He was killed when someone jumped from the top of the building and landed on him. He listened and he couldn't answer the wife's question about why, why this happens. I can't answer that question either. But what I can tell you is this, is that there is a God who is ever bit as heroic as that. There is a God that you have who rushed into a burning building and again and again and again, and he did it to buy you back, to ransom you, to purchase you, to win you for himself. And he doesn't just endure listening to your stories. No, he doesn't, he doesn't merely endure your stories. He actually has written himself into your story. He has written himself into your story so much so that he infuses every moment of your life with value and worth. The question, how much are you worth? What is your life worth? Let's think about it. <laughs> Let's think about it for a second. Whether you are an unborn fetus or you are someone who is 90 years old, the blood of Jesus Christ covers every moment of your life. At no point are you worth more or are you worth less. Jesus Christ has purchased you. He has won you. He has made you his very own. This is the gospel. This is the message of salvation. This is the message of redemption. This is the message that there are no checklists, there are no to-do's, there are no earning potentials, there's no things that you have to do, but you just get to be, you just get to be brought in to the family of your God. He paid for you. He paid your way. He spilled the blood of his son. He spent his son so that it could read fully paid. How much are you worth? What is your value? Let's talk about this. <laughs> Let's talk about this for a second. <laughs> what does it cost to have you? If the biblical view of humanity is correct, if the gospel is true, you are priceless. <laughs> There's nothing in this world. There's nothing that anyone could say, nothing that anyone could do, nothing that anyone in this entire universe could do to spend, to do, to take you from our God because he's bought you, he's purchased you, he's won you with the blood of his son. Think about that the next time you look in the mirror. Amen. Amen. 